Good morning, NLD family. My name is Alexander, and it's wonderful to be here with you this morning. Throughout this series, we are reading each psalm as a call and response. If you are able, please stand as we read Psalms 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord will not let your foot be moved. The Lord who keeps you will not slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The sun shall not smite you by day. The Lord will keep you from all evil and will keep your life. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you remain standing as we pray? Almighty God, we ask today that as we listen to the scriptures being read and being taught, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, breathe your words into our hearts, that you would speak to us, you would challenge us, you would change us, you would breathe your life into us. We welcome the work of your spirit this morning. We pray all the, these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, New Life Downtown. My name is Glenn Packham. I serve here as the pastor. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to be with all of you today. I, uh, I've been lining up some books to prepare for my summer reading, and I've made it kind of a goal for for this year to read more biographies and memoirs. And I just finished kind of a humorous memoir uh, by Bill Bryson about growing up in the 1950s. And one of the things that I was struck by in reading that book is that the, the 1950s were an era of unprecedented fear, that everybody sort of thought that, that global annihilation was just around the corner. In fact, in a survey that was done in 1955, 40% of American adults said the end of the world was near. 40%, that's almost half the adult, not only was it near, but that it was going to happen as a result of global conflict. And some of you, you know, you probably weren't around, maybe some of you were around, or maybe you just sort of inherited the stories that were told by grandparents or parents or whatever the case might be. And you remember the stories of fears of, of communism and, and even the kind of panic that happened in this country with McCarthyism and just whole groups of people sort of being said, okay, maybe, maybe these are people to look out for, maybe there's danger there and there's missiles being aimed at our country and all of this stuff, lots of fears because of the nuclear age. And yet, in the midst of being an age of unprecedented fear, it was also an age of unbridled optimism. And so in the 1950s, you had technology happening. You had people being able to, to purchase, maybe for the first time in the average American home, refrigerators and washing machines and TV dinners. And people were like, what is this sorcery? We have all this free time. And people are buying bigger homes and digging swimming pools in their backyard. And so there's this fear that this could all blow up any minute. And why not build a swimming pool? Let's do it. And it's just this, this strange mix of things in the 1950s that made it precisely the perfect era for the boom of comic books. You see, the 1950s were the heyday of comic books. In fact, the stats are that there were so many copies being purchased and sold that there was a time at which 100 million copies per month 
of comic books were being produced just to keep up. Not new titles, but just, just copies, just floating around everybody. I mean, kids were reading it, young people. Maybe some of you might recall the first few iterations of these comic books, right? In fact, they surveyed adults and school teachers, and 15% of adults were honest enough to admit that they too liked the comic books. And I think that maybe the 50s were the perfect sort of uh, era to produce these comic books because in the midst of apocalyptic doom, we needed Superman. In the midst of sort of crime and growing cities, we needed Batman to take care of Gotham, you know? And so there is this sense in which not only were we projecting our worst fears, but we're also projecting our deepest longings. And after a time, the sale of comic books began to kind of you know, trickle down, TV happens, Saturday morning cartoons happen, but the heroes haven't gone away, right? In fact, we've got this surge of DC and Marvel comic books, and I still haven't seen the Infinity War. I have four kids. We don't get out much. But there's this surge, and we love it, and it's great fun. And maybe it's partly because somewhere deep inside, we want a guardian to look after us. We want a helper who will rescue us. We want a deliverer who is above it all, who can look in the face of danger and say, I've got this. Psalm 121 is a prayer for our, to our helper and our guardian. We've been in this series now in the book of Psalms, and we started sometime in January and been working our way through the Psalms, and we're near the end of it next week at the park. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about Psalm 150, the great eruption of hallelujahs to the Lord. But here we are in Psalm 121, and it's called a song of ascents. It's a song of ascent, meaning it's a song that was sung on the way up to Jerusalem, on the way up to worship, on the way of pilgrimage. Psalm 121 is a prayer to pray when you're a traveler on the road of life. It's not just a song of pilgrimage because, oh, once a year or whatever, when you make your way to Jerusalem, sing this song. It's meant to be, in some ways, a metaphor for all of life. All of life is a journey, is a pilgrimage, and we're travelers along the way. What do we say to God along the road of life? Psalm 121 is a prayer for travelers. And so if you would, if you'd open your Bibles, maybe you've got it on your app or whatever it is. We've just read the psalm. It's only eight verses. And I want us to look at these themes here closely. The first couple verses, I lift my eyes up toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, first of all, when he says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains, what is he talking about? It's possible that what the psalmist has in mind is on the hilltops underneath green trees, the prophet said, were these altars and shrines to the false gods. So it could be, that, could be that the psalmist has in mind the options from whom to get help. Oh, well, there's that God, there's that God, there's that shrine, there's that, you know. It could be that the psalmist has in mind the many idols of the pagan world that if you needed help with your crops, you've worshipped that one. If you needed help with this, you, you, you. it could be that that's what he was thinking about. Or it could be something much simpler than that. That on the road to Jerusalem, as he's traveling, he knows that the, the journey is full of danger. There are bandits. There are, there's threats around every corner. And so as he's looking up toward his destination, he's saying, I need some help. Where does my help come from? Come from? It comes from the Lord, who, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, this word help is interesting. When, you, when we use the word help, particularly as, uh, maybe as Westerners, it, it tends to have a less than sort of connotation to it. 
In the darker years of American history in the antebellum South, you think about how slaves in the household were referred to as the help, and it's a way of sort of denigrating or putting down. And then sometimes people think, oh, well, well a woman is created to be Adam's helper. And so maybe that's, you know, that's sort of a less than sort of st status. The word for help in Hebrew is the word ezer, and it shows up about 18 or 19 times in the Old Testament. And yes, it is the word used of Eve in Genesis when God says, I will make a helper for him. But in case you're tempted to conclude that a helper is a less than, is an assistant, is a junior associate, the rest of the time the word ezer is used in the Old Testament, it's used of God. It's used of God. In fact, Every time Ezer is used in the book of Psalms, it's used of God as the helper. When the prophets talk about Ezer, it's talking about God as the only one who can help. And so don't let anybody ever say to you, if you're a woman, if you're married, don't let anyone ever say to you, oh, you're a helper as in you're less than, you're lower in status or value or function. Don't let anybody tell you that because God has compared himself as the help. Don't let anyone use this as a phrase to beat you. Understand that this is an aspect of the image of God. God himself describes himself as the helper, the one who's here, who's ready to help. Where does my ezer comes from? It comes from the Lord. And then as the verses go on, verses 3 through 5, it says, God won't let your foot slip. Your protector, now pay attention to this word, protector, your protector won't fall asleep on the job. No, Israel's protector never sleeps or rests. The Lord is your protector. The Lord is your shade right beside you. This word protector is the other key word in Psalm 121. The help, Ezer, and the protector, Samar, Shamar. And this Hebrew word is, is translated in our Bible sometimes as keep, preserve, tend, Watch. It's a rich word that's meant to conjure up for us images of someone who's watching over, keeping, tending, preserving. Maybe the best we can come up with in English is the word guardian. And so Psalm 121 wants us to see that God is our helper and our guardian. God is our helper and our guardian. The one who delivers and rescues. The one who watches over and preserves. Now look at these few verses again, and I want you to see a couple themes. My help comes from the Lord. Why is that in all caps? Many of our English translations do this. Here's the reason. Whenever you see in the Old Testament, Lord in all caps, what they're saying to you is, this is where the holy covenant name of God, Yahweh, is said. And we dared not translate it, and so we just said, Lord, with all caps, Yahweh. My help comes from Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. God won't let your foot slip. Your protector won't fall asleep on the job. No, Israel's protector never falls, never sleeps or rests. In this psalm, as in so much of the Old Testament, are two themes, creation and covenant. Somebody say creation. creation. Somebody say covenant. These are the two massive, two of the many massive themes in the Old Testament. And what the psalmist wants us to, to, to know is God, the, the helper that we're talking about, the guardian that we're talking about, is the creator of the universe. 
the maker of heaven and earth. And then he says, not only is he the maker, he's Yahweh. That's not a generic name for God. That's not a way of saying the universe is looking out for you. This is not a generic being in the sky. This is not the force is with me and I am with the force. This is something deeply personal. Israel's protector. And then he says, your protector. This is a way of bringing it up close and personal. Verse 5, the Lord is your protector, Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, is your shade right beside you over and over again. In the first five verses, the psalmist says, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Why? There's two reasons why. First, because the creator God, because it's the creator God that is our helper and our guardian, nothing is beyond his scope. Have you ever tried to get help from somebody, maybe at your workplace, you go to your supervisor, you say, look, I'm having a little bit of trouble here. I, I, I wasn't paid the, the right amount of overtime hours. And your supervisor says, oh, that's not really my area. You're going to have to go see accounting about that. I'm like, come on, you know you could fix this, but you're trying to use this sort of corporate, you know, red tape. Like, I'm sorry, you're going to have to go to that department to talk about this, right? It's, it's in someone else's area, someone else's jurisdiction. The psalmist says, the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. It's his way of saying there's nothing that's outside of his jurisdiction. There's nothing that's beyond his scope. You can't bring a claim to God and have God say, ooh, that one's not in my area. You can't bring a prayer to God and God say, wow, I wish I could help you. Could you go talk to so-and-so about this? There is nothing beyond his scope. Someone say amen. amen. Because your helper and your guardian is the creator God. Nothing is beyond his scope. But then he doesn't just say the maker of heaven and earth. He keeps saying Yahweh, 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 the covenant God. Why does that matter? Because the covenant God is our helper and guardian. Nothing is beyond his concern. There's nothing worse than talking to someone who could help you but doesn't want to. I mean, how many of you have been on those customer service calls? You've been on the airport, in the airport where you've had a flight delay, and you're talking to me, you're like, listen, I know you can get me on this flight. There's like six empty seats. I just need one. I won't even take the free mini pretzels. And like, I'm so sorry. I, uh, and, and they don't say that they can't because they know they can, but they just say, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to do that. Oh, what? Why? Do you not care? What the psalmist is saying is God is not just the creator God for whom nothing is beyond his scope. He's the covenant God for whom nothing is beyond his concern. Nothing is beyond his concern. There's not one area of your life, nothing small, nothing great, nothing big, nothing tiny, nothing minuscule, nothing trivial. There's nothing that you can bring to God that he'll say, eh, I mean, I don't know if I care about that. He'll say, you're mine and I'm yours. I'm your covenant God. The helper and the guardian is the creator God and the covenant God. That's good news. That's good news. And that's what Psalm 121 is saying. He's saying, look, there's nothing beyond his scope and there's nothing beyond his concern. This God is your God. And then he goes on and just tells us how good this guardian really is. Listen to this, the next few verses. Verse 4, we'll back it up and then go all the way to verse 8, the end. Israel's protector never sleeps or rests. Can I just say that in pagan literature, there are stories about the pagan gods sleeping at night. And in the Old Testament, like, let's just be clear. 
That's not our God. That may be your God. Y'all may have a God who sleeps, not our God. Israel's God, Israel's protector, you see how specific it is? Israel's protector never sleeps or rests. The Lord is your protector. The Lord is your shade right beside you. The sun won't strike you during the day, neither will the moon at night. If you're wondering when God will guard you, when will God help you, the answer is always. There is never a time of day where God says, oh, it's not, did we have an appointment? There is never a season in your life where God will say, oh, this is a season where you're on your own. I'll pick up the next one. The psalmist is saying, is it nighttime? He's with you. Is it daytime? He's with you. He'll be your shade at your right hand. The Lord never sleeps. When is God your guardian? Always. And then he goes on, verse 7, he says, the Lord will protect you from all evil. So our next question is, what will God guard me from? Little stuff, mosquitoes. Some says, no, no, let's say all evil. Name it. What's the monster you're, you're worried about? What's the evil you're terrified of? The Lord will protect you from all of it, all evil. There's not, there's not an evil that's too great for God. Christians don't have the view of good and evil being two equal forces. That, that's not a, that may be a Buddhist view, I don't know, but that's not a Christian view. Christianity is not the view that good and evil are equal and opposing forces locked in a cosmic battle. No, the Christian view, the Jewish view, Old Testament and New Testament, is that evil is just this little thing, and God is over it all. And he says he'll protect you from all evil. What does God protect us from all evil? Okay, great. When, what? God will protect. What is God protecting? He will protect your very life. Your very life. The Lord will protect you on your journeys, whether going in or coming from now until forevermore. Somebody say amen. 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 Hallelujah. God is watching over us. God is protecting us. Now, I know some, some of you are feel, might say, well, that hasn't been my experience. This happened. This happened. This happened. Disease Tragedy, bankruptcy, divorce, death, this, 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 this. Where was God there? I understand that. I understand that question. And I need you to know that Psalm 121 was not written by a televangelist with a private jet. Psalm 121 was not written by a preacher who had everything working out for him. Psalm 121 was not written by a people who had plenty of cash left in their bank account. Psalm 121 was not written by a people who always had life to sort of fall into their laps. Psalm 121 was not written by people that were the envy of all the nations of the world. Psalm 121 was written by a people who were always being kicked around. Psalm 121 was written by a tiny little nation in the ancient Near East who found themselves always in the crosshairs of the bigger empires of Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. Psalm 121 was written by a tiny, oppressed group of people who had just returned from exile. A people who had just returned from exile, who were looking at the ruins of their temple, trying to remind themselves that God is still their help. If you think that your life situations are so dire that you couldn't possibly pray Psalm 121. I want you to know it's been prayed by people who were going through what you're going through and then some. I want you to know that this is a prayer 
Not for people whose lives are perfect, but for people who are trying to recover after the exile. And people who are trying to remind themselves, ah, in the face of this challenge, ah, in the face of this difficult journey, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? I need to lift my eyes up because I know everything that is right in front of my eyes and it ain't very good. I can see that and I can see that and I can see that and I can see that, but I need to lift my eyes up higher. One of the commentaries says the hills, it's a reference to Jerusalem. It's a reference to the destination. It's a reference to the pilgrimage that these people are on. It's a reference to saying, don't, it's a way of saying, don't just look at where you are in the journey. Look at where you're going. Don't just look at the moment. Look at the destination. Don't just look at this stopping point. Don't just look at this valley. Look at the hill. Jerusalem is where we're going. We're going there. We're going up. The New Testament grounds this hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there was ever a follower of Jesus who struggled with believing that the journey was going to be difficult, it's probably Peter. You know, Peter, fisherman, Jesus calls him, and the first time Jesus calls him, he has like a bountiful catch, Peter does. And so he's like, wow, this is, I, I'm, I want to follow that guy. Follow him, you get more fish. Sweet. Sounds like a good deal. And then somewhere along the way, Jesus says, do you really know who I am? And Peter says, you're the anointed king. You're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, that's right. Man, you got revelation, Peter. I'm going to build a church on you. Peter's like, mm -mm. did you hear that? He's talking about me. And then Jesus says, well, let me tell you what the anointed king is going to do. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter says, not on my watch. He says, no way. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. In fact, one of the Gospels tells us that when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter took out his sword. Peter wanted to be Jesus' guardian. Jesus said, ah, Peter, it doesn't work like that. The way of Christ is a way of suffering. Peter says, no, 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 you, never, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's like, what happened to all that revelation and rock stuff? <laughs> Satan? And Peter, as he goes on after the, the resurrection, he's restored into ministry, he writes a letter to these churches, and it's a tender letter of encouragement. And I imagine, I imagine it's older Peter now writing this, a wiser, older apostle writing this letter, and this is what he says in the opening verses. First Peter 1, verse 3, he says, May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be blessed. On account of his vast mercy, he's given us new birth. You've been born anew into a living hope. Somebody say hope. Peter is giving us a little foreshadow of what he's about to say. He's going to acknowledge how life is difficult, but he's going to keep lifting our eyes up to the hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a pure and enduring inheritance that cannot perish. Here he, here he goes. He's starting to talk about what's coming. He's starting to talk about what's ahead. He says there's an inheritance that is enduring, that is pure. It cannot perish. 
an inheritance that is presently kept safe in heaven for you. Have you ever been on a long hike, tempted to give up, and then somebody says, no, listen, it's going to be worth it. When we get to that point, that the view is going to be stunning. Have you ever been there, or is it just me, right? Peter is saying, look, the pilgrimage is hard, but let me tell you, something is being kept for you, and it's going to be worth it. Something is being stored up for you, and it's going to be worth it. It's being kept safe in heaven for you. And then verse 5, through his faithfulness, you are guarded by God's power. Peter wants us to know not only is your inheritance being guarded, but you are being guarded. Guarded so, by God's power so that you can receive the salvation that he is ready to reveal in the last time. Listen, we get confused about this, but salvation, to put it in sort of imperfect human grammar, salvation is past present, and future. Yes, we have been saved, but this isn't as good as it gets. And yes, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. The fullness of our salvation will come. And this is what Peter's saying. He's ready to reveal your salvation in the last time. You now rejoice in this hope. I love this. Because Peter's not disconnecting the future from the present. In fact, he's connecting them together. He's saying your future hope can be the source of present joy. Your future hope can be the source of present joy. You can now rejoice in this hope. Even It's not because the, the, the situation in the journey is good. It's because the destination is good. And rejoice now. Your future hope can be a source of present joy. Even if it's necessary for you to be distressed for a short time, by various trials. This is necessary so that your faith may be found genuine. Your faith is more valuable than gold, which will be destroyed even though it itself is tested by fire. Your genuine faith will result in praise, glory, and honor for, when, for you when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's coming. Although you've never seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him now, you trust him and so rejoice with a glorious joy that is too much for words. There's that word rejoice again. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, your salvation. Your salvation. See, I think what Peter would say to us and to the, the people who prayed Psalm 121 is that being guarded by God does not mean that we will not face hardship along the journey, but it does mean that we will reach our destination in the end. It means that we will reach our destination in the end. It doesn't mean there won't be hardship. It doesn't mean it won't be difficult. But being guarded is to say that you will arrive at the end. You will arrive safely in his hands. You will arrive. It will happen. How do I know? Because Jesus himself became vulnerable. Because Jesus himself became unguarded. Jesus himself became helpless so that the helpless could find their helper. Jesus became vulnerable so that the vulnerable could know their guardian. I mean, think about how his life on earth began. Jesus arrives into our world not in like the prime of youth. Jesus arrives on earth <laughs> the way the rest of us did. It's a helpless, vulnerable baby. I mean, those of you that are parents 
in the room, do you remember the feeling of, take, of holding your first child in your arms? I mean, I remember our Sophia 13 years ago. Sophia was born. She was like five pounds, six ounces, tiny, a week early. And I remember holding her thinking, oh, God, I hope I can keep her alive. And then, unfortunately, my wife knew what to do, you know. But you have this fear of like, whoa, this, is, this little thing is so vulnerable. And when you first see they got all this ick and goo and their stuff and they're crying and they need to be cleaned up. And you're like, ah, I don't know what to do, right? That's how Jesus Christ came into the world. And so, you know, sometimes our Christmas carols sanitize this. Away in the manger, you know, no crying he makes. Baloney. In fact, it's because he cried as a helpless baby that there's some hope for us. He knows it. He knows what it's like to be helpless. And then there's no more vulnerable moment than the end of his earthly life where he's hanging on a cross, naked, beaten, spat at, mocked, whipped, barely able to breathe. It doesn't get any more vulnerable than that. Jesus became the vulnerable so that the vulnerable could have a guardian. Jesus became the helpless so that the helpless could find a helper. And I hear Jesus whispering to us as we're traveling along the way saying, you're going to make it. Because I overcame, you will overcome. Because my father raised me up on the third day, he will raise you up again in the end. Because God brought me to the end, you too will receive the goal of your salvation. Amen, amen, amen. I hear Jesus whispering to us along the way. And then Jesus said to us, I'm not leaving you as orphans, but I'm going to pray that the Father will send another helper. Some translations say a companion. I like that. We have Jesus who's gone before us, and we've got the Holy Spirit who walks alongside us. The paraclete, the one who comes alongside all along the way, every step of the way, so we can say, I'm on pilgrimage right now, and this is a lousy place to stop. And the Holy Spirit's saying, right, well, we're not going to stop. We're going to keep walking, and we're going to get there. We will arrive on the mountain of the Lord one day. We will arrive on the mountain of the Lord one day, and the, Jesus has gone before us, and the Holy Spirit walks alongside us, and that is how I know, friends, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. This is your song of ascents. This is your prayer for pilgrimage. I know there's tears. I know it's hard. I know it feels like hell, but it's not going to be the end. Jesus has gone before, and the Spirit walks alongside you, and we will arrive one day and say, bless God, my helper and my guardian. You did it, Lord. You did it, Lord. And so this morning, my prayer for you is that you too would lift your eyes just a little higher. Look beyond the doctor's report. Look beyond the balance sheet. Look beyond the forecasts and the prognostications. Look beyond all of that. Just look a little 
higher. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth.